and welcome to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode features articles from the July 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue 7. First up, John Boyce talks about his article, Impact of an Automated Hand Hygiene Monitoring System and Additional Promotional Activities on Hand Hygiene Performance Rates and Healthcare-Associated Infections. Then, Lindsay Visnovsky and Jean-Marie Mayer discuss the effectiveness of a multi-site PPE-free zone intervention in acute care. Then, Roger Stace talks about the effect of eye images and a social norms message on healthcare provider hand hygiene adherence. And lastly, Mira Tandon and Philip Sloan discuss their research article, Antimicrobial Resistance Patterns of Urine Culture Specimens from 27 Nursing Homes, Impact of a Two-Year Antimicrobial Stewardship Intervention. After listening, please be sure to go to the July issue of Itchy to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Now let's get started. Our first guest today is Dr. John Boyce, first author of the article, Impact of an Automated Hand Hygiene Monitoring System and Additional Promotional Activities on Hand Hygiene Performance Rates and Healthcare-Associated Infections. Welcome to the Itchy Podcast, Dr. Boyce. To begin, can you give our listeners some background on your study? Right. Uh, thanks, Lindsay, for giving me the opportunity to comment on our article. By way of background, I think it's important to mention that for years, direct observations of healthcare personnel by trained auditors have been considered the gold standard method for estimating hand hygiene compliance rates. However, due to the fact that direct observations only capture a tiny fraction of all hand hygiene opportunities, and compliance rates based on observation are often inflated due to the Hawthorne effect, there's increasing interest in using automated hand hygiene monitoring systems to supplement direct observations. However, currently, there are still relatively few articles dealing with automated hand hygiene monitoring systems and their impact on hand hygiene performance rates and their ability to reduce healthcare associated infections. So we thought it was important to describe the experience at the hospital in Hanover, Pennsylvania, where a group monitoring system is in use. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you did in your study and what you found? Yes, uh, the individuals at the hospital continued to monitor hand hygiene compliance using direct observations at the same time that they sequentially installed the group monitoring system on four different nursing units, with the system going live on the first unit in June 2014 and the last unit in April 2017. Their experience illustrates, I think, several important issues related to monitoring and promoting hand hygiene. First, they found that the hand hygiene compliance rates based on direct observations were significantly higher 
and performance rates recorded by the automated system, a finding that has been reported by a number of other investigators. Also, they found that there was not a sustained improvement in hand hygiene during the first year after the system was installed on the first unit. During that time, little else was done to promote hand hygiene. However, implementing a number of supplementary uh, promotional activities resulted in a statistically significant 85% relative increase in hand hygiene performance rates. Those supplementary activities included goal setting, visible support from hospital leadership, feeding the results obtained by the automated system back to healthcare personnel, and using uh, a Toyota performance improvement methods. As a result, healthcare-associated infections not related to Clostridioides difficile decreased by 56%, although this did not achieve statistical significance, perhaps because the study lacked sufficient power to demonstrate a significant difference. And so what would you say are the most important takeaways from this study for itchy readers? Some of the messages that itchy readers should take away from this study include the following. First, installing an automated hand hygiene monitoring system by itself may not yield significant improvements in hand hygiene. Such systems should be included as part of a multimodal hand hygiene improvement program that includes improving institutional safety culture and engagement of and input from frontline personnel. And lastly, can you talk about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that it raised? Right. Uh, limitations of the study include its quasi-experimental study design with stepwise implementation of multiple different interventions. And other limitations include the fact that the study was performed in a small hospital, which may limit its generalizability and the fact that its cost effectiveness was not determined. So clearly, additional studies are needed to better define the ability of such systems to yield sustained improvements in hand hygiene, to reduce healthcare-associated infections, and to determine their cost effectiveness. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Boyce, for taking time today to share your study with our listeners. Uh, th thanks very much, Lindsay, for this opportunity. I appreciate it. With us now are Lindsay Wisnowski and Jean-Marie Mayer, two of the authors of the article, Effectiveness of a Multi-Site Personal Protective Equipment-Free Zone Intervention in Acute Care. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wisnowski and Dr. Mayer. Can you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Uh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having us and giving us the opportunity to uh, talk about our work. Uh, my name is Lindsay Wisnowski. I'm faculty in the Division of Epidemiology at the University of Utah. 
And my research is in the area of infection control interventions, especially hand hygiene and contact precautions used, and using adherence engineering to try and improve compliance and, and workflow for staff. And I'm Jean Marie Mayer. I'm an infectious disease physician and the hospital epidemiology at the University of Utah Hospitals and Clinics. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, tell us a little bit about the background for your study. Sure. Uh, so hand hygiene and using gloves and gowns when caring for patients in contact precautions are uh, currently some of the best strategies that we have for preventing transmission of antibiotic-resistant bacteria to other patients on the unit. Unfortunately, the way that we typically use gowns and gloves uh, to care for these patients can actually create frustration with the PPE from healthcare staff. And one of the reasons for that is that PPE can actually be quite a hassle to put on and take off. The ropes can tear a little bit or are uh, billow when trying to care for the patients, and that can create frustration for uh, the staff. And uh, it can also impact the team's normal workflow, leading to things like bundling of care tasks so everything is done at one time, or when teams are rounding, they can save all the contact precautions for last. Another issue with the traditional way of using contact precautions is that they can interfere with patient communication and actually discourage healthcare staff from even visiting those rooms compared to rooms where patients are not on contact precautions. And then one of the other things that you frequently hear when you talk to staff about contact precautions is that it interferes with their making personal connections with their patients or having the ability to do personal touch and skin-on-skin -skin contact and then also that their patients often feel isolated as a result of contact precautions. So each of these issues can contribute to less than ideal compliance with traditional contact precautions by staff and may also negatively affect proper hand hygiene. Furthermore, since the use of PPE when caring for patients with antibiotic-resistant organisms is often part of a bundle of infection prevention interventions, Estimating that isolated effectiveness of contact precautions is problematic. The mix of all these challenges has led some to even question the value in traditional implementation of contact precautions and to rather focus more on broad-based infection prevention strategies such as hand hygiene or even chlorhexidine bathing. Uh, with all that said, there's limited evidence to date demonstrating that eliminating contact precautions is safe. Other options may be to consider selected or targeted use of PPE. So because of this, we set out to test sort of a middle ground approach known as a safe zone or as we've dubbed it, a PPE-free zone where we could balance continuing to use contact precautions for high-risk patient care or when touching the patient's environment, but then also being able to relax glove and gown requirements in low transmission risk areas just inside the room entry of patients who are in contact precautions. The idea is to make contact precautions easier to use without getting rid of the potential benefits. And others have tried this approach and cited positive perceptions in conference abstracts but usually it's been part of local quality improvement projects and may have been limited in scope. We wanted to conduct a larger, more rigorous trial to test the effectiveness of a PPE-free zone on 
hand hygiene performance and the use of PPE in a variety of different patient care locations in a number of hospitals. We were also interested in learning more about healthcare personnel perceptions of a PPE-free zone approach. So to do this, we created a red duct tape box that would provide a visual cue to alert hospital staff and providers to where the lower transmission risk areas of contact precaution rooms were. The duct-taped areas ran the width of the doorway by about three to five feet deep into the patient room, and it was dependent on the physical layout of the room. We had staff place the tape whenever a patient was placed into contact precautions. And then to be able to keep this visual cue fresh and noticeable, uh, we asked that the staff pull the tape up when that patient was discharged or transferred. Inside of the duct tape area, or in other words, the PPE free zone, staff and providers would then be able to talk and check in on patients who were in contact precautions without being required to put on gloves and gown. However, if they did cross that red line and go further into the room to actually provide direct care to the patient, staff and providers were then expected to and needed to have done hand hygiene and be wearing their PPE. So what exactly did you do and what did you find? So to test this PPE-free zone that Dr. Mayer was describing, uh, we performed a quasi-experimental pre-post study and we had a concurrent control unit. And we actually observed staff at three medical centers, uh, 16 different units, a mix of medical, surgical, ICU, and specialty units. And we ended up with almost 4,000 observations uh, by the time we were done, where we were monitoring how uh, healthcare staff's hand hygiene and PP compliance changed from baseline where they were not using the zone and doing usual care approach to then uh, the period where we were using the PP free zone. And uh, as far as our results, we found that the PP free zone didn't significantly affect uh, hand hygiene or PPE compliance uh, overall, uh, except in rooms where patients who were on precautions for C. difficile, in that case, the PPE-free zone uh, actually improved staff's overall hand hygiene. But it was reassuring to us and, and would be of interest to uh, readers of ITCHI that using this relaxed approach did not appear to decrease any compliance with important infection control practices like hand hygiene or PPE use. Um, another thing that we found as part of this study, uh, we conducted surveys of staff members at all three facilities. And uh, two-thirds of the staff be uh, believe that the zone either helped facilitate communication with patients, that it helped them address their patients' needs more quickly, and also that it helped them uh, check on the contact precautions patients more frequently than they otherwise would be. And I would also say that staff at one of the sites were so enthusiastic about the PPE-free zone, they were even clamoring for and insisting that we bring it back when the study ended. <laughs> and so how are your findings useful to the itchy readers? And do you have any plans to build on this research in the future? Absolutely. So I think a practical issue that itchy readership may be interested in is an understanding how to best implement a PPE-free zone approach in clinical practice. 
And as Dr. Viznovsky has already described, we've tested how to implement the zone approach in a study setting, but we're now currently working on how to translate use of the zone into ongoing daily clinical operations. So hospital epidemiology and infection control at one of the study sites is working with lo local stakeholders to feasibly employ a PPE-free zone approach in all adult ICUs. And this will provide us with an opportunity to study how the zone may need to be adapted for sustainable clinical use. Yeah, and so in addition, uh, kind of a combination of, of clinical use as well as for research purposes, one of the other things we'll be doing is looking at ways to modify and optimize how we actually implement the PPE-free zone so we can help healthcare staff improve their hand hygiene and use of contact precautions for these uh, higher transmission risk types of care encounters. And one of the ways that we can do this is by better understanding the complex social socio-technical systems for how patient care is actually delivered in contact precautions rooms. And so this can include uh, understanding staff workflows as well as how time or other uh, pressures for patient care can impact the overall delivery of care for these patients. So as an example, uh, in Many of the study units, uh, gloves and gowns were actually located outside of the patient's room in the hallway. And so to be able to use the zone, staff would step into the room and talk with the patient. But then if they came to the realization and decided that they needed to use the zone or cross the zone, they would have to actually step back out into the hallway to get the PPE. So trying to use the PPE-free zone in a way that simplifies workflow and incorporates it into the normal work patterns of, the, of staff could mean instead of having PPE dispensers outside in the hallway that we could move it to the edge of the zone, maybe um, by hanging it on the door or, or similar uh, locations. Uh, or another example for that would be um, we had nurses placing the tape on the floor each time a patient was placed into contact precautions for the study's purposes. But uh, in the long run, when you think about it, that's probably a lot to ask a frontline staff to try to do on top of their usual responsibilities. So uh, another thing we'll be working to do is trying to find a way that we can ease the workload of placing the tape um, each time, but also still prevent habituation to the tape itself. So overall, our, our next steps are uh, going to be looking at improving the, our current understanding for how contact precautions and hand hygiene happen within the larger care delivery and contact precautions room. Great. Well, thanks so much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Wisnowski and Dr. Mayer for joining me today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. With us now is Roger Stace, one of the authors of the article, The Effect of Eye Images and a Social Norms Message on Healthcare Provider Hand Hygiene Adherence. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Roger Stace. I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado Denver uh, Business School. Um, and um, I was collaborating with some of the uh, doctors uh, at Denver Health, and we wanted to do a uh, project that was interesting to all of us. And so can you tell us a little bit of the background for this article? Uh, yeah, a number of years ago, uh, we were talking about uh, the challenge of uh, measuring hand hygiene 
and there's this disconnect between the supposed best practice or gold standard of measuring hand hygiene, which is having someone with a, uh, often with a white coat and a clipboard, uh, looking at people working in a hospital to see if they're washing their hands or, or using hand rub, alcoholic hand rub. And uh, everyone, within minutes, everyone on the floor in a particular ward knows, oh, someone from, hand, uh, from infection control is here to check on us. Let's be on our best behavior. And 99% you know, of the time, that's not the case. And so people's behavior in those situations is quite different. And so we wanted to see, well, is there uh, some opportunity to artificially create that feeling of being watched uh, without actually you know, paying someone to stand there with a clipboard? And so mm -hmm. we thought, how about we try uh, a picture of some eyes staring at you, kind of like the Mona Lisa. Sort of, she seems to be looking at you no matter where you are standing in the room. And, and that can trigger, there's some research that's showing that uh, eyes, the feeling of being watched uh, changes behavior. And we did a little pilot study and got good results and then uh, tried to uh, do a more bigger sample uh, with, with more reliability and more sample size. And administratively, it was very tricky to do that. Uh, and so uh, with, with multiple iterations and several years going by, uh, we finally got the study together and done and written up. And so what exactly did you do in your study and what did you find? Well, what we did was uh, our initial intention was to electronically monitor uh, healthcare providers in the hospital uh, who were not aware they were being monitored. So that way we could go from the, you know, the, uh, the, the base rate of people, you know, how often do people wash their hands or use alcohol hand rub when they don't think they're being watched to when there's these eyes uh, you know, staring at them from, uh, just a picture of eyes staring at them from the wall. Um, and then a second intervention was a social norms message, which was effectively, hey, everyone else around here washes their hands, you should too. And, and to see if both of those interventions had any effect. Uh, but that was really tough to do because, well, but it, it's sort of kind of invasive to, without telling people they're being monitored, to monitor them. Uh, it's a bit of an invasion of privacy. and. There was you know, some administrative backlash against that. And so uh, what we ended up doing was uh, a little bit of a different question, which was when people know they're being monitored and know that their sort of hand-washing behavior is, is um, being recorded, does having some eyes and therefore the feeling of being watched, does it uh, bump up the hand hygiene compliance even more? Uh, so it's a more of a salient reminder of, of you're being watched rather than just an abstract idea of, well, I'm being recorded by a computer, but maybe that doesn't matter right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was essentially what we did. And what did you find? <laughs> well, we found, uh, so what we did do was the, when people know they're being, um, uh, their hand washing or hand hygiene is being monitored, the addition of eyes staring at you or a social norms reminder that everyone else is doing it, you should too. Uh, they did not incrementally increase the hand hygiene rate. Uh, so mm -hmm. that was a bit of a um, yeah, bit of sad news, but also not too surprising because uh, when, when you know you're being monitored, I guess you know you're being monitored. Right, right. And so what would you say are the key takeaways of your study uh, that are particularly relevant to the itchy readers? So the, the biggest takeaways uh, for me of doing this study was that studying hand hygiene is really tough. Um, methodologically, there's uh, 
just a lot of challenges of doing a good study, um, particularly when you're trying to collect uh, large sample sizes. And so using this electronic monitoring system uh, we use in the study, we were able to collect thousands and thousands of, of um, incidents um, of or opportunities for hand hygiene. And, and mm -hmm. so that was great. But at the same time, uh, we, we had to sort of tell people that this was happening. And so that meant that restricted our ability to ask really interesting questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of the, the uh, more sort of uh, fundamental result, uh, and that is that when you know you're being monitored in an abstract sense, uh, having visual cues reminding you, supposedly in a salient way, um, that you know, there's eyes staring at you, uh, that really doesn't move the dial. Um, you know, there's already about a sort of 70 to 80% compliance rate, and with the reminders, it stayed about the same. I, I think that was good to know that that is the case. The, the other challenge is that um, having electronic monitoring uh, in large organizations like a hospital uh, is expensive uh, currently, and maybe that'll change in the future. And so what we were doing is we had an expensive intervention being supplemented with a cheap intervention. And basically what we found is the expensive intervention of electronic monitoring uh, was good enough on its own without the addition of the cheap intervention. Mm -hmm. And my last question is, did the findings from this research or the limitations of it raise any future research questions that you plan to investigate or that you'd like to see investigated? Yeah, that's an ongoing uh, negotiation. Um, ideally, it would be nice at one point to uh, go back to our original question of when people don't, healthcare workers don't know that they're being monitored, uh, which is most people most of the time, are there cheap ways to bump up the compliance rate? And uh, we weren't able to answer that question in the uh, research we've done. And uh, so we're hoping at some point eventually we'll figure out how to do it in the future. Well, thank you, Roger, for joining me today on the Itchy podcast. And as I mentioned earlier, listeners can find the full article in the July issue of Itchy. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Our next guests today are Mirror Tandon and Philip Sloan, two of the authors of the article, Antimicrobial Resistance Patterns of Urine Culture Specimens from 27 Nursing Homes, Impact of a Two-Year Antimicrobial Stewardship Intervention. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining me today. To start, can you introduce yourselves to our listeners and then give us some background for your study? Hi, I am Dr. Mira Tandon. I am a postdoctoral research associate at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Sloan. I'm a professor of family medicine and geriatric medicine and a health services researcher here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, so can you give us a little bit of the background for this study? The main focus of our study is the urine culture and bacterial resistance to antimicrobial prescribed for urinary tract infection in nursing home in North Carolina, United States. The main reason for conducting this research is that urinary tract infection is the most common and overdiagnosed infection with prevalence of 5.7% in nursing home in the United States. And at the same time, antimicrobial for the treatment of UTI is quite high which is 4.8 to 12.9 courses per thousand residents. And more than 80% of the prescribed antimicrobials for you are inappropriate in nursing homes. So 
One of the important causes for overprescribing in the urine culture testing is the urine culture testing that contributed in the development of antimicrobial resistance, and more than 50% of the antimicrobial prescribed in nursing home are for asymptomatic bacteriuria and more often higher for those residents with youth urinary catheter. So in general, guidelines do not recommend testing of bacteriuria in older people without the clinical evidence of UTI, nor antimicrobial prescribing based on the presence of urinary catheter. This is because almost all residents in nursing homes and with urinary catheter are colonized with bacteria. So this study is a part of 24-month antimicrobial stewardship intervention in 27 nursing homes in North Carolina before the implementation of mandatory antimicrobial stewardship program in the nursing home in the United States. So the objective of our study is to identify the changes in the prevalence of urine culture and positivity rates and the antimicrobial resistance pattern of potentially pathogenic bacteria in the urine cultures in the nursing homes during two years antimicrobial stewardship intervention. The aim of this study was to optimize antimicrobial use and reduce bacterial resistance in the nursing homes. And so can you tell me a little bit about the methods for this study and what exactly you did? This was a study of antibiotic stewardship within 27 nursing homes in North Carolina. The study recruited nursing homes in 2014. It ran from September 2015 to May 2017. And because urine culture results were an important outcome, the study worked hard to gather information from 28 different laboratories that served the 27 nursing homes. In addition to gathering the urine culture results on a monthly basis, the study involved a very robust antibiotic stewardship intervention that included, among other things, um, ongoing education for staff, pocket cards for staff and infection guidelines, guidelines for urine testing and priorities for antibiotic stewardship. We had audit reports that went quarterly to the nursing home um, medical providers and nursing home administrators and nursing directors. We had informational brochures for residents and families. And uh, we had things like posters for nurses to put in their break rooms. So it was really as robust as we could while putting the nursing home in charge of implementation. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the findings from your study? Uh, the finding of our study is that from 27 nursing homes, we have uh, 6,718 urine cultures studied. Uh, from 28 laboratories and 68% were positive and 18% were negative and 14% were recorded as a polymicrobial. From the 68% of the total positive culture, we have 38% um, of E. coli, 13% of protease species and 12% of Klebsiella pneumonia identified and 10% enterococcus and 6% of pseudomonas. Urine culture and urine culture positive rate per thousand residents did significantly decrease from baseline, which is from 4.15 and 2.8 per thousand resident days through the active antimicrobial stewardship intervention period to 3.1 to 2.1 per thousand resident days. With reference to change in the resistance pattern, significant changes in the antimicrobial resistance was not observed for frequently cultured uropathogen, that is E. coli, Klebsiella, pneumonia, and protease species, but 
we have found some of the antimicrobial have significantly reduces the resistance pattern. For example, for E. coli resistance to nitroforantrin has decreased from, from our baseline from 13% to 6.6%. And similarly, for the protease species, we can see we, we, in our study, we have like ciprofloxacin resistance uh, has reduced from 71% to 65%. Uh, and for Klebsiella pneumonia, we have nitrofrontine use, uh, resistance to nitrofrontine reduced from 64% to 47%. But this one is still high in, uh, is still high and which requires focus on improving the routine practices of these this antimicrobials. And so what would you say are the most important takeaways for itchy readers from your study? The main takeaway of our study is uh, like an antimicrobial stewardship intervention program uh, reduces urine culture and culture positive rates in nursing homes. And looking into the resistance pattern observed for different antimicrobials to common uropathogen, no strong inferences can be drawn, though the trend has decreased from some uh, for some pathogens. So direct feedback on the resistance level results should support a more conservative approach to prescribing with emphasis on need of UTI symptoms as well as urine culture before an antimicrobial is, is prescribed. And Dr. Sloan, did you want to add anything? Well, to those, I would add a couple of take-home points that are kind of tangential to the study itself. The first is that um, cultures are really important uh, because clinicians have to make decisions empirically often around therapy. And one of the issues is you know, where you get your culture information because most nursing homes don't have enough cultures to create an antibiogram. So this study provides data across a number of nursing homes and this may be an approach to use instead of going to the hospital for antimicrobial resistance patterns. So I think our data may be helpful to clinicians that way. The other issue is that how long does it take for antimicrobial stewardship programs to reduce actual resistance patterns? Well, in two years, we see some hints in that direction, but no real, real strong changes. And this is in line with what hospitals have noticed as well. You know, it may take five years to really reduce resistance patterns. And so I think there's room for optimism that, that eventually will show that antimicrobial and that microbial stewardship programs will make a difference. And lastly, can you talk about the limitations of the study and any future research questions that it raised? Yeah, <clears throat> uh, we, we, uh, as all the studies have limitation, we do also have some limitation, like uh, the time frame of two-year implementation of stewardship intervention is not sufficient to see the changes in the resistant pattern of antimicrobial to select a dirofatison as changes in the bacterial resistance may take place, uh, may take many years. And the other one is the study design, which do not include the prescription information. So we, uh, so it doesn't allow us to determine any relationship between changes in the culture results uh, and changes in the prescribing. So this can be the future research we can, uh, um, we can do. And uh, also the study size, even though this is the largest antimicrobial stewardship trial reported to date in the community's nursing home, uh, including 27 nursing homes with the urine culture result, a much larger multi-center uh, trial uh, might have demonstrated a stronger st statistical relationship with the findings 
however, our study provide benchmark as well as guidance for future research. So the, this can be done as in, in a large scale in the future and to see uh, for, for a longer period of time. So to see the real differences in the resistance pattern. And also we can include some prescribing relationship with the antimicrobial resistance in the nursing homes. Great. Well, thank you both for taking the time today to share your study with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This concludes Episode 7 of the Itchy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Itchy Podcast on iTunes. And a special thanks to Jack Simchak for our theme music. Thanks for listening.